Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Emily. All right. Uh, open your Bibles now with me, if you would, to John chapter 12 as we continue uh, this amazing chapter full of Jesus' teaching. Um, really, uh, this is the last section of Jesus' public teaching uh, that John puts in his gospel. Uh, we'll, we still have a lot of his teaching of his disciples in private, rich things that he's going to share with them before he goes to the cross. Uh, but chapter 12 ends his public ministry, uh, just as far as what John records and gives to us. And so just keeping that in context of some of the things that have happened, it's been a few weeks at this point in, in, God, in John's gospel since he raised Lazarus from the dead. Gave everyone the, the, the picture that he is life and the giver of life and able to conquer death. He has been, and the other gospels tell us, telling his disciples on multiple occasions, I'm headed for Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, the leaders are going to arrest me and abuse me and kill me on a cross. But after three days, I will rise again. He's been preparing them, and yet it's just kind of going over their heads to the point where you know, they're arguing at times, and they will argue uh, yet in this final week about who is the greatest. Uh, Jesus comes into Jerusalem, even though the religious leaders have been seeking to kill him already. Comes in, if you remember, on a donkey, riding in as a king of peace. And shows himself to be, in fact, the coming one. And yet, are they getting it? Even though they shouted out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who, who God is going to send. And then we've been looking more recently at when some Greeks or Gentiles came. And they approached Philip, one of Jesus' disciples, and said, we would like to see this Jesus. Probably people who we would call God-fearers, Gentiles who had believed in the God of Israel, worshipped with the Jews in their synagogue, wherever it is they came from, to come to the, to the Passover feast, and had heard about Jesus. Maybe had heard Jesus talk us teaching, and then he said, we want to see Jesus. And that started this whole discussion in which he talks about it being his time now. He has entered into that Passover week, and he is headed for the cross. And he's going with determination. As he says in that section, should I say, take this away from me? But no, I've come to do your will. Glorify your name, Father. That's his whole, whole desire, ultimately, is to glorify the Father. But he's going to do that by coming to die for the sins of of humanity, of people, so that they could put their trust in him and have life. And so we're coming into really some verses that I covered really briefly last week, uh, verses, uh, verse 31. I touched on it. I told you to give you the short version. Well, this morning we get the long version of what's in verse 31. Uh, because as, as God is just, the Father has just given his approval by saying... I have both glorified my name and will glorify it again through you is basically the idea. 
Here's, here's God the Father's stamp of approval through his very voice. Now Jesus is going to talk about the, the outcome the, of what it is he's doing. So follow along with me, if you would, as I read verses 31 through 36. And Jesus says, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. These things he spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. So this statement in verse 31, these two statements really, come flowing out of his his talking about the fact that my time has come. He said to be glorified. Well, how will he be glorified? He'll be glorified by going to the cross and dying and bearing the sins of man and then rising from the dead. And and then, then he will be exalted to the right hand of the Father. But now he's talking about what are the impacts here on earth? And he says now judgment is upon this world. This world. What what is Jesus referring to when he says that that phrase, this world? We often think of the globe. We think of the earth. Uh, But he has a very specific uh, concept in mind. I'm going to give you, I guess, the long answer to that. Because if we dig back into where the idea of of this world comes from, it helps us know why he came and, and how what he accomplished is so amazing. So let's go back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. And I'm going to kind of build the, the structure around what, what the idea of this world is that he says has judgment now belonging to it would be another way of translating his phrase there. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, uh, we have the creation of man. And, and that's really should... should uh, cons- be something we're super interested in, right? How did God make us? What did he make us for? How did this all get started? What was his intention? And that's what we're told in Genesis chapter 1. Verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing, that moves on the earth. 
So here we have this amazing work of God to say, I've created all of this. That's what precedes that in Genesis. And now I'm going to create this, this new creature so that he reflects what I'm like in my being and in my creativity and in my sovereign, sovereignty over things. And notice he says, now you go out. You understand this creation. Learn it. Get to know it. Basis of science, right? Learning what God's creation is all about. But then also, subdue it. Rule over it. Make it useful. Take what I've made and transform it then into things that are useful. Organize it. Take care of it. You are now under me, the ruler of my creation. It's really an amazing thing that God tells Adam and Eve, it says he made them male and female, right? To do. They're to utilize this creation in a way that reflects what God is like and the image that God had put into them. That's quite an amazing thing, isn't it? But it isn't just Genesis that tells us. David reflected on that in Psalm chapter 8, if you turn there with me. Psalm chapter 8, we'll look at verses 3 through 9. There David says, When I consider the he your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him? I looked at all this amazing creation and said, and then there's this little speck on this little tiny globe, right? God, why, why, do, you, why do you even notice us? Verse, he continues on, And the Son of Man, that you care for him, Yet you have made him a little lower than God. The New American Standard says, your, your translation might say, than the angels. So that's a very valid translation as well. You've made him a little lower than God or, or the angels. And you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So we got Genesis looking forward, David looking at, at things as, as in his time and says, God, look at what you did in creating man. How, how is it you could do such an amazing thing for these creatures? So man is the ruler of the earth, right? So when Jesus said, was going to say that the, the ruler of this world will be cast out, is he going to cast man out? No. This world got another ruler, didn't it? We go back to Genesis chapter 3. Everything changes there, right? Now, we could go into more detail. You could have been in a Sunday school class with uh, Samuel this morning, and we got more detail there, right? But uh, we're just going to hit verse 5 here. The essence of this temptation. Satan comes in the form of a serpent. 
What's the essence of the temptation that he throws out before Eve when he says, you should eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God, you say God said you can't eat from. Verse 5, the essence of it, he says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the, that's the heart of it. God's just withholding from you the ability to be like himself. You, too, can be God. At least the God of your own little area. You can't trust God. He's holding back on you. Right before that, he said, surely you will not die if you eat it like God said. In that temptation, the primary issue was who is in control and who has their best interests in mind. And Satan works to convince them that he, in fact, has their best interests in mind. He's trying to get the, give them something that God is wrongfully withholding from them. And the devil, he, he drew them out by showing them the beauty of the fruit and by challenging God's intentions. Tempted them to be like God. and Take that step. Eat the forbidden fruit. And know good and evil, rather than trusting God to know the difference between good and evil, or even to know evil, right? They'd never known anything evil up to this point. Now they're looking at evil in the face, you could say, as they, as they face the serpent. But his whole, whole goal here was to gain influence over the ones created to rule over God's creation. So that he could then, by influencing those that had been rightfully given rule over creation, he could rule over creation. And ever since, Satan has been manipulating those that God granted that rule to so that he could be the ruler of this world. And of course, Satan is, is, is he intelligent? Oh, brilliant, right? Is he powerful? Yes, God created him as a very powerful, angelic being. And he has a network of demons that work with him. He has a system so that he can control what goes on in this world that man was given to, to rule over by manipulating mankind. If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll see how Paul describes that. Second <clears throat> Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, the thrust of, of that passage is, well, how should the one who is the servant of the Lord act and be? But as we get to the, to the end, we find out the reason. So he says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. There's a key phrase there. He's going to talk about what these people who are in opposition are like at their core. If perhaps... God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So here's, here's the chain of what happens when we, we gently present the truth to those who are against us. As God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. 
you understand what happens when someone, their eyes come open, they realize what Jesus has done for them? Because they, they no longer have to be manipulated by Satan into doing what he wants them to do. And so this is really a compassionate view of those who are against us, by the way. You say, why, do pe- why are people so mean? Why do they hate us? Why do they do this to us? Why do they not think like we do? Well, because they're held captive to do the will of Satan. And Satan has a vast system to keep that control going on all the people that he can. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews talks about this as well. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. And by the way, we'll come back to Hebrews 2 later on, So, just so you're ready. But we'll look right now at just verses 14 and 15 to talk about what Jesus did in giving himself as a sacrifice. It says, therefore... Since the children, that would be us humans, share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus, himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. Who has the power of death? That is the devil. Verse 15, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. And here's one of the main tools that Satan uses to keep people under his thumb and doing the things he wants. The fear of death. Becoming sinners, we became subject to death, right? Which means there's an expiration date on each one of you, right? We're only here for so long. And now he can use that to manipulate us into doing the craziest of things. Think about the sinful ideas and philosophies and patterns and actions that we do. Satan loves to use the fact that we're afraid of that end date we have. And in that fear, we will do all kinds of things to avoid dying, right? We will jump through all kinds of weird hoops, make different things what we live for, so that we don't die. Uh, maybe it's our exercise. Maybe it's our food. Maybe it's the pills we take. Maybe it's the things we avoid, the things we do to, and we don't do. Well, those are all ways to turn our attention to those and make them what we live for. Or he can take our fear of death. I'm only going to be around so long, and so I've got this list of things that I've got to do before I go. So this is my priority. I want these experiences while I'm still alive. And Satan uses the fact that we're afraid that we're going to die and we're not going to get what we want to say, well, I'm not going to do the things that God wants that are really important because I want to experience those things. Or I want to have this level of comfort for those years because I only have so many years left. Satan uses our fear of death to inspire things like theories of evolution. Really? Well, yeah, because if we die and we find out that there really is a creator, that means we're accountable to that creator. And when we die, what next? Oh, will we get what we deserve? Oh, no, 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 we can't even think that way. We must establish these, these theories that say, There is no God. This all just happened by chance. And you can see how Satan works in the lives of every human being to try to get them to do the things that are against God 
by manipulating them through the fear of death. And so he, he puts that pressure on. And this system in the world is what Jesus means when he says, this world has been judged. Because he is certain to go to the cross. That's what he just talked about. I'm not going to ask this to be put away from me. I am going to the cross. This is my time to be glorified. But he goes after the heart of the issue. He could certainly just oppose Satan with a word, wipe him out. But guess what? He'd have to wipe us out with him because we are evil in our sinfulness. And so Jesus went to the heart of our problem, died on our behalf so that we, our punishment of death would be paid for. Therefore, when it came to death, we don't, we don't have to be afraid of death anymore because he's already gone there and conquered it and won. And then he comes back and makes us part of him and walks through death, into a new life with us. Uh, there's, a, there's an illustration by uh, F.B. Meyer in his book, The Way into the Holiest, which is about the book of Hebrews, that, that he uses, I think, helps us to understand how Jesus is overcoming that fear of death issue. He says, A child was in the habit of playing in a large and beautiful garden with sunny lawns, but there was one part of it a long winding path down which he never ventured. Indeed, he dreaded to go near it because some silly nurse had told him that ogres and goblins dwelt within its darksome gloom. At last, his eldest brother heard of his fear and after playing one day with him, took him to the embowered entrance of the grove and leaving him there terror-stricken, went singing through its length and returned and reasoned with the child, proving that his fears were groundless. At last he took the lad's hand, hand, and they went through it together. And from that moment the fear which had haunted the place fled, and the memory of the brother's presence took its place. So has Jesus done for us. Except, I would say, in Jesus' case, there were real terrors where he went. And he took those on and defeated them, then comes back to us, walks through death. So that we don't have to fear death any longer if we are in Christ. He's been there, he has conquered it, and will walk through it with us. But what about this judgment? Now judgment is on this world or belongs to this world. And what a judgment is, is really just a statement of what is real and true and bringing about the consequences of that reality. So Jesus says, because I'm certain to go to the cross, because that will certainly pay for the sin of mankind, so that will certainly be put into an impact or into effect for those who believe in me, here are the things that will happen. So the certainty of his going to the cross says, I've judged Satan's system. I've pulled it apart. Its power is nullified, its days are numbered, and it will be completely dismantled. It will lose power over those who believe because they are joined with the all-powerful Savior. So then he goes to his next statement, because if the whole system's been judged, 
What about the ruler of the system? Well, Jesus back in John says the ruler of this world will be cast out. It's a future tense. It's something that's going to happen for certain. What does that mean? Well, there's a sense in which it already had begun to happen. When Jesus sent out the 70 that went ahead of him before he went and taught in the various villages, and they came back, and they had amazing stories to tell. Let's look at that in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 through 20. Here's what happened when they returned. It says, verse 17, The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. So even in Jesus' earthly ministry, that world kingdom that Satan manipulates began to shake as his power was demonstrated. But even for us now who have believed in Christ, he's saying, guess what? Satan is falling. In James chapter 4, verse 7, there's just a short little statement in the middle of what James is teaching that makes this clear. James 4, verse 7, he says, Submit Therefore, to God. Why does he bring that up? Well, because right before that, he's been saying, saying, don't be a friend of what? The world. That system that's dominating things here. Don't be its friend. Makes you the enemy of God. Instead, line yourself up under the authority of God. That's what that word submit means. Line yourself up under the authority of God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you because you are a believer in Christ, because you are united with him and his power. He says, take a stand. And guess what? Satan doesn't have to just kind of back up a little bit. No, he turns tail and he flees for safety from you. Not so much from you, but the one you're united to, right? To Jesus who destroyed death and the power of death and brought judgment on the system that Satan heads up. And that's why Paul taught us that we can actually win in the war against uh, demonic beings and Satan. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Familiar verses, and we're not going to get into the details of how it happens. We're just going to get the basic statement, and you can work on the rest from there. But verses verses 12 and 13 of Ephesians 6 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're We're not fighting against people or human beings. But against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. There's a sense in which Satan has been cast out from having power against us that can prevail. 
And then he goes through and tells us the tools, the weapons that are ours to stand against when Satan tries to get you to do what he wants, tries to terrorize you. There's a sense in which he's been cast out of having any authority or ability against human beings who are in Christ. But we can take even greater greater comfort in the fact that it's going to happen even more so. During the tribulation period, there's going to be a time when Satan is cast out of being able to come into God's presence. You say, what? Satan coming into God's presence? Yeah, happened with Job, right? Satan comes from wandering about, goes and talks to God about Job. Apparently up until the, this point in Revelation chapter 12, he still has that access and He's actually responsible to God. In a sense, he's required to report, you might say. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, during the tribulation period when Satan is trying to exert his full authority over this earth, it says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels thrown down with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, and he who accuses them before our God day and night, and they have over and they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life, even when faced with death. So at this point during the tribulation period, Satan's going to be cast down to the earth, and what follows is woe to those who are on the earth. There are going to be people during the tribulation period who are going to put their faith in Christ. What this tells us, John's the author of this as well, by the way, is that they will overcome him. Oh, not by going out with swords and guns or whatever else, but because they have no fear of death. Even going into death, they trust in God because of the word of their testimony. They trust God and will follow him even to death. It's going, right? But Revelation 20 is where it all finalizes. <clears throat> the first part in verses 1 through 3 where it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. And after these things, he must be released for a short time. So at the beginning of the, the 1,000 year or millennial reign of Christ, Satan's grabbed, tossed into a pit, and captivated for a thousand years. Certainly cast down there, right? And if you're familiar with Revelation, you find after that thousand years, he gets to come out and do his, do, do his best, again, to try to defeat God. At the end of the thousand years, guess who loses? Satan does, right? 
Uh, if we get down to verse uh, 10, it says, <clears throat> after trying to, to rally support on the earth at that time, it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the end. That's Satan's final being cast down to never cause anyone to consider rebelling against God again. Never to cause any problems. And so Jesus, in the midst of saying, I am going to the, to the cross, it's a certain thing. Says that whole system that's in this world now, it's been judged. Judgment now belongs to it. And it will be cast down. Its ruler will be cast down. And Jesus is, in essence, saying, therefore, I will reign. And then Jesus continues as we go back to John. Remember, that's where we started here. I told you this was the long version. Verses 32 and 33, he says, And if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But it was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And here Jesus, looking toward his death, was looking with hope toward what was coming. Now, this is that for the joy set before him that we've looked at in Hebrews chapter 12. He endured the cross, despising the shame. But what does he mean if I am lifted up? Well, the term was a figure of speech in that day, meaning crucifixion, to be lifted up from the earth. Meant to be lifted up on a cross and killed. Verse 33 confirms that when it says, but he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. And here John, looking back after many years, everyone knew how Jesus died. He was crucified. So John confirms when Jesus said, when I am lifted up, what he meant was, when I am crucified. But John has already shown Jesus using this phrase in John chapter 3 and John chapter 8, and you can look those up. But in John chapter 3, it was, would be the means of salvation. And then those who believed in him would have eternal life. And in chapter 8, he said, when the Son of Man is lifted up, then you will know that I am He. In other words, when you crucify me, you'll realize I'm the one who was sent. But also you'll know that I am God. And you'll look at some of the things that happened. Everyone should have known at the time he was crucified that he, in fact, is God. But by playing on that double meaning of being lifted up, be crucified, or the idea of being lifted up in order to be glorified, Jesus gives us a look at both meanings. Yeah, lifted up to die on your behalf, but also that means one day I will be lifted up to be glorified by all. And he points to his ultimate being raised up when one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But he says, when I, I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. What does he mean by that? Well, first of all, I'll say he's not saying, and some people who are universalists who say just everybody ends up saved because Jesus died. They'll grab a hold of that and say, see, Jesus said if he was lifted up, he'd draw all men to himself. <clears throat> but 
we've already, he's already been recorded back in chapter 5 as saying there will be two resurrections. One resurrection to life and one resurrection to judgment. See, Jesus is very clear. Unless you believe in him, John chapter 3, you have been condemned already. So unless you believe, you will not receive eternal life. So he's not saying that just because he is lifted up, every person will be saved. Remember the context. Why did Jesus begin this discussion at the start? Because these Greek men, these Gentile people came and said, we want to see Jesus. And the way this is worded actually in the Greek, it's really uh, simple. If I'm lifted up, I will draw all to myself. What do you mean all? Well, in the context, I think it means I'll draw all kinds of people to myself. Not just Jews, but like these Gentiles who are seeking me, they're already starting to come. I will draw all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, people from all kinds of nations, rich and poor, old and young, those who have fallen into the, the deep mire and consequences of sin, and those who are what people would say are good people. Now, he'll, he'll draw those evil kind of people too, right? The ones who have sinned, but the consequences in their daily life is, aren't quite so great. He says, if I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all kinds of people to myself. And now... Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2, and, and we'll actually wrap up here rather than going all the way to the end of the outline. Let's go back, because Ephesians, the author of, I'm sorry, not Ephesians, but Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has put this all together for us, even quoting from Psalms. If we back up a little bit from where we were before, before we were in, in verses 14 and 15, but we're going to back up to verses 5 through 10. And the whole purpose of Hebrews is to show that Jesus is better, better than everything. One of the points is that he's better than angels. In verse 5 of Hebrews 2, he says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come. That makes sense because he didn't subject the original world to angels either, did he? Subjected it to human beings that he created for that purpose. So he didn't subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, oh, where's that somewhere? Psalm 8. The author of Hebrews says, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while poorer than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he continues on, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, to man. We look at the world and it's a mess, isn't it? Have we got this world under control? Are we as human beings ruling over God's creation? <laughs> no. He says, we don't see that. But then he goes on to verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. 
So here the author of Hebrews inserts Jesus into Psalm 8. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. Oh, who is going to be drawn? Well, many sons, many who would become sons of God by putting their faith in the Son of God, right? How would he do it? To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Jesus taking on human flesh, becoming one of us, becoming one of those that God had created to rule over this world, came and did it perfectly, lived without sin, and then took the punishment for all of his brothers, right? A little later on, we'll talk about how he doesn't, not ashamed to call us brothers. He has joined the human race so that he might taste death for who? Everyone. But is it everyone that receives the benefit? No, it's only effective for those who will believe. Jesus makes some bold statements here in just a few verses and how do the people respond? Well, we're going to stop there and come back to that because really the rest of the chapter is about the response. What do you do with this truth about what God has done through Jesus? What Jesus has done by going to the cross? How Jesus has judged this world and will cast out the ruler of this world, Satan? Do you believe it? If you do... You are with him. I don't have to worry about the power of Satan over you. You go to the one who is all-powerful and resist the devil. Or you can stay dominated by the ruler of this world, and you can do all kinds of crazy things. You can believe it all came into existence by accident. You can believe that you just decide what you are, if you're a man or a woman or whatever. See how crazy we can go when we're manipulated by Satan? And the fear of death. You can believe that if you have enough money, life will be good. You can believe that and you can put whatever your particular idol tends to be in that list. Or you can submit yourself to God, trust in Jesus, and let him give you real life. And then you can live according to that. In other words, saying, ah, oh, my sins are forgiven now. How should I? Oh, well, I should probably go with the one who saved me from death, right? The one who saved me from hell. The one who saved me from being dominated in this life by Satan. That's what Jesus would have you do. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to do what you have called us to or as Jim put it a couple weeks ago, that we would have a, a walk that is worthy of our Savior. That we would do what it is that He has for us to do. And not, not so that we can have a relationship with You, but because You have given us a relationship if we put our trust in Jesus. Help us to understand this. I know I, I can't make it make perfect sense. I know I've missed so much. I've uh, maybe ways I could have made it clearer, but your spirit can apply this now to our hearts. And I pray that you would do that and, and make a difference in how we view and understand you, therefore how we live and understand our lives. 
we would live in Christ according to who he is. Thank you for your, your good truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.